to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. The free jazz movement of the late 1950s and 60s into the 70s was pioneered by greats like Ornette Coleman, John Coltrane, Cecil Taylor, and Sun Ra. It was perhaps the most radical phase in the evolution of this uniquely American art form because musicians attempted to change or break down jazz conventions such as regular tempos, tones, and chord changes as too limiting, and it remains controversial to this day. A new documentary by Tom Sergal called Fire Music, the Story of Free Jazz, captures the sights and sounds of that time through interviews, performances, and archival footage. It opens this Friday at Film Forum, and Tom Sergal, its director, joins us now. Welcome. Hi. How are you doing? I'm okay. Has free jazz been neglected to some degree by most jazz historians? Did Ken Burns deal with it in his documentary on jazz? Uh, no, that was a glaring omission. Uh, there was a, was a rather exhaustive study, a 20-hour-long uh, uh, expose on the, the milieu and uh, basically ignored the uh, free jazz movement altogether. Kind of shocking, actually. But it is a form of music that's not always easy to listen to, and maybe that was a concern. But why is it still central to the evolution of jazz? Uh you know, it's a, it's an essential phase of jazz. You know, jazz is a is, is a continuum, and uh, uh, it was uh, you know a a, 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 a a radical offspring of of what went before. It's uh, but very much coming out of the jazz tradition, as as jazz is always about innovation. And you open the film with a quote from Karl Marx, quote. The tradition of all dead generations weighs like a nightmare on the brains of the living. Right. Did, did the pioneers of the free jazz movement see themselves as revolutionaries? Um, I suspect, yes. Uh, you know, we have to realize the, the uh, tenor of the times in which this music was being played. I, I think they were very much fueled by uh, what was happening uh, on the political landscape at that time. You know, it was very much you know, an offspring of the uh, civil rights movement, which metamorphosed into the black militant movement. The uh, anti-Vietnam uh, uh, scene was in, in full rage. I, I think uh, it was a, a music that very much, you know, echoed the sentiments of the time in which it was being played. On the musical level, did they feel that the bebop, hard bop, and modal jazz that of the time that was based on regular tempos and improvising on chord changes was too limiting? Um, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure that was part of it, but I, you know, there, there, there was not a rejection of what went before. I, I think the, uh, uh, the point I make in, in the film is they were very much devotees of bebop. You know, Charlie Parker was a, a, a great source of inspiration and, uh, one must not forget that he was a radical innovator in his era and that uh, 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 he, he very much eschewed uh, a lot of what a lot of the musical conventions that are, uh, existed before him. I mean, Louis Armstrong was aghast at his, uh, at his playing. He referred to bebop as that Chinese music. <laughs> so. But there already was uh, were variants like uh, Miles Davis was playing modal jazz. Right. Right. So can it be seen as a continuum, the music continually becoming more improvisational and less tied to, to melody and chords? Right, very much so, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, they were no longer 
tethered to certain conventions, but uh, I, I, I think they, they saw themselves as, as I say, as part of a, part of a tradition. Um, uh, they definitely broke, broke with certain musical conventions, but at the same time, um, it was still jazz. Well, you have a clip of Cecil Taylor who says, it seems to me that music is everything that you do. Right. <laughs> what do right. you think he meant by that? Uh, and then, yeah. wait, and I want to add another quote from him in which he says that musicians prepare and the audience should have to prepare too. Right. Is, isn't right. that asking a lot from an audience? Yeah, you know, it, 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 it's... As an individual, it's hard for me to say. You know, I, I took to this music right away. I, I was 13 years old when I got into it. But, um, you know, I was asked the other day in an interview, when did you get into avant-garde jazz? And, I, you know, I got into all jazz at the same time. And, uh, you know, maybe it was because I was naive. It, it didn't seem that that different or, 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 or <laughs> I don't know how to phrase it, but it it, I, it was certainly radical, but... Uh, uh, I found it digestible as a 13-year-old, so I don't know if it's as difficult as everyone says. I mean, there's a lot of music that's difficult, but it's a lot more celebrated, uh, you know, uh, contemporary classical, you know, artists like uh, Luciano Berrio or Ayana Sanakis, uh, their music is certainly would be deemed difficult by the layman, and yet their music is performed at every major uh, philharmonic all over the world, and uh, uh, they seem to enjoy a... Uh, a status that uh, has escaped the avant-garde jazz uh, artists. So uh, I think it's a, uh, a matter of perspective. Well, I was a little older than you when I first uh, saw Ornette Coleman. I was, uh, I remember seeing his quartet during their two-week residency at the Five Spot in November 1959. Wow. With, with Don Cherry, Charlie Hayden, and Billy Higgins. And I used wow. to go to the Five Spot because I was a Thelonious Monk freak. And uh, I can't remember who Ornette was. They always had two groups, and Ornette was one of the two groups. I liked what I'd heard. But all of my musician friends rejected it, although uh, some came around a little later. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you include numerous clips of the music critic Gary Giddens. How does he explain the evolution of free jazz? Um, well, I think he makes a lot of interesting points. Uh, uh, one thing I remember he expressed early in the movie is that uh, he was saying that uh, uh, Again, the avant-garde innovators weren't rejecting what had preceded them. They weren't critical of, uh, of a more conventional jazz. It's just what they were doing was different and um, should be appreciated as such. Did it begin in Los Angeles with Ornette? Well, that's, <laughs> that's complex. Obviously, uh, uh, Cecil was was doing his thing, and I think they both released their first albums in 1999. Transition, I believe, was Cecil's uh, mm -hmm. earliest work. Uh, that 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 that's a little hard to determine. A lot of people say Sam Rivers was also uh, uh, very much in the forefront of the new music, and he was, you know, uh, uh, in New England. So I, I I don't know where it. I don't know if one can ever uh, definitively determine where it actually started, but it definitely seemed to all coalesce in New York. They, I, I do make the point in the movie that there was a migration, and it was, uh, I think they 
all kind of fed off each other and uh, the music definitely uh, evolved uh, once everyone ma- made, the, made the exodus to the Big Apple. Ornette Coleman called his system harmelotics. How right. is that different from what preceded? Oh, don't. Yeah, I don't, you know, you're, you're talking to the wrong guy here. I don't read or write music, so I can't begin to talk music theory with you. But uh, but it wasn't chord changes. Right. No chord changes. No piano. That was that was mm. radical at the time. And uh, also uh, uh, the bass and drums played a much more primary role. Uh, he insisted or not insisted that Charlie Hayden uh, not recede into the back room, both both physically and musically and he would stand uh right next to uh uh ornette and uh don cherry uh when they would perform live well ornette was already 29 years old when he came to the five spot so had he already worked out his ideas by then i think so i think uh he was part of that uh la scene uh which consisted of john carter and bobby bradford is featured in the movie uh prominently um i i think he was in Bobby's words, pretty pretty much radical from from the get go. Uh, uh, the point I make in my movie uh, was of note to uh, uh, jazz aficionados is uh, I was somewhat surprised that Bobby said that Eric Dolphy was actually much more conventional when uh, playing in L.A. and it wasn't until he made the transition in to, to becoming a New Yorker that uh, he really started going down a more radical path. But uh, I think Ornette was was always the uh, just as revolutionary as he ever was. But not always appreciated in Los Angeles. Wasn't he beaten up after one of his performances in L.A.? Yeah, yeah, that, that's documented in my movie. Uh, both uh, Ingrid Sirsta, the singer, uh, wife of Carl Berger, and Bobby talked about him being on a stand one night and... Uh, his uh, fellow musicians were, were so repelled at what he was doing that they uh, they beat him up and he had to be hospitalized subsequently with a collapsed lung. So, <laughs> and they destroyed his uh, his alto. So that yeah. is the reason yeah. he began playing a plastic alto because he couldn't. I don't know if that's the reason. I I, I know uh, I I read that he liked the tone of the plastic. Uh, hmm. uh, he found it uh, more 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 malleable. He, uh, I read that he used to keep it in the refrigerator so it would retain its tones. Well, it was one of the, it, it also was a kind of an announcement that he was going to be doing something different from other musicians when you saw him. Uh, was right. his 1960 album Free Jazz the first album length piece of improvisational jazz? Full, full, right. full album? Right, two quartets playing simultaneously yeah, on, on two channel. different channels. But, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's uh, so he you actually um, hear them in an odd kind of stereo. Right. Right. Maybe we should listen to a little something, uh, something from Free Jazz Part One. OK, All right. that sounds great. OK. Uh, uh-huh. My guest is uh, Tom Sergal, who has uh, made a new film called Free Mu- Fire Music, the story of free jazz. And one of the key figures, of course, is Ornette Coleman.
Coleman and uh, two quartets performing free jazz. Uh, Ornette is one of the key figures in a new film from Tom Sergal called Fire Music, the story of free jazz, which uh, opens this Friday at Film Forum. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. You can understand listening to that why some people uh, were a bit shocked by that music. Because it doesn't really, I mean, it sounds improvised, but it doesn't sound like the jazz that preceded. True. <laughs> you but, it, you know, you, there's no denying it's, it's uh, aesthetic beauty at the same time. Now, Ornette also fought for musicians to be paid fairly. Did he see that as a civil rights issue? Were black musicians being paid less than white musicians? Yeah, that's true. Uh, Bobby Bradford makes that emphatic point in the course of my movie. Uh, and uh, basically, Ornette went on strike and refused to play for a while and uh, very much uh, was a galvanizing force in the, uh, in the musical circle at that time. What was the Jazz Composers Guild? Was that an attempt to get fair pay for musicians? That is exactly right. Uh, that was a... Uh, uh, a movement, so to speak, where the musicians actually try to sort of unionize and sort of band together and because they really were not getting a fair shake. They were essentially banned from clubs. They uh, had to seek out alternative outlets in which to play, uh, community centers and churches and cafes, and uh, which ultimately led to... Uh, the 1970s loft scene, which is sort of the heyday of the avant-garde jazz movement, uh, where musicians basically uh, uh, converted their home living spaces into performance uh, uh, venues. Uh, but uh, uh, yeah, the Jazz Composers Guild was uh, really a, a, a essential uh, phase in the development of music because uh, they were just trying to get grants, trying to get recording opportunities that uh, just were not available to them. And were the, the lofts and places where the musicians lived, the same buildings that painters and other visual artists were living and working? That's true. I uh, highlight Sam Rivers' uh, Studio Rivby, which I actually went to as a, as a teenager. And uh, that was really, for me, the epicenter. There's a uh, four-album a compilation released by Continuum called Wildflowers that documents that whole scene. And um, yes, uh, Sam Rivers, his uh, his upstairs neighbor and good friend was uh, Robert Maplethorpe. Uh, I know uh, uh, Juan Moreau was a big 
devotee of Sam's. He, uh, he, uh, contributed a painting to him, which, uh, Sam complains was stolen at some point or uh, misplaced. Uh, it was, uh, obviously Patty Smith was, uh, 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 in league with uh, Robert Maplethorpe. I think they were romantically linked at that phase in their lives. Uh, it was, uh, there was a lot of cross-pollination going on at that time, and um, it was uh, very much a, 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 a meeting place of, of great minds. And a lot of them were in the, uh, in the area on the, I guess, the east side, right? The east village. Well, Stuart Ridley was actually in the... Technically, the west side, it was, what is it, on the Great Jones between Broadway and Lafayette. Um, uh, uh, there were other spaces, uh, that, you know, there, there, but it was in, in, in the downtown area. Well, the reason I mentioned is uh, in the film, the musicians talk about a time when many of them lived in the same area, the East Village, or around 3rd Street between 1st and 2nd Avenue. Right. And I'm right. assuming that, that that's because it was close to the five spot and some of the newer, more offbeat jazz clubs that were open right. in that time. Right. They, yeah, they all, it's, uh, that was one of the, my remarkable revelations in the course of making the movie is how they all literally uh, physically lived on the same block. Cecil Taylor, Sun Ra, Dave Burrell, Archie Shep, uh, literally all lived on uh, on Third Street between First and Second. I was initially dubbed that section positively Third Street, but uh, <laughs> well, that must have been odd walking down that street when they were uh, working things out <laughs> in their right. apartments. Right, and then uh, uh, the Hell's Angels were on that block till recently oh, yeah. as well. So, was, <laughs> oh yeah, they were out on the street. I remember. Scary. Right, right, right. So. There was a lot of radicalism in the air at that time. <laughs> what was the October Revolution? October Revolution was really what preceded the uh, formation of the uh, Jazz Composers Guild. It was uh, all the artists uh, uh, appeared at the Cellar Club, which is, I, I believe, actually on the Upper West Side, a little before my time. And they, uh, uh, it was really just an extension of, of what we were discussing before, where the musicians tried to sort of take their musical destinies in their own hands and, and uh, really highlight this music. And it, and it worked. They got a lot of media attention. And um, I, I think after that, there was a lot more focus and a lot more critical appreciation of what these musicians were doing and the, the innovative strides that they were making. Now, John Coltrane may be the most famous musician from the movement, but wasn't he already a superstar when he embraced free jazz? Right, that's entirely true. I mean... Um, I don't know if there is a uh, musical scenario like that because he was at the top of his game. He was the most popular artist in recorded history, uh, possibly with the exception of Miles Davis. And uh, well, of course, he had been part of Miles Davis' group at one point. He also worked with Thelonious Monk before he started his own groups. Right, right. And he was, uh, once he started his hallowed quartet, he was. Uh, the number one recording artist in jazz and at the height of his success he uh completely uh changed his sound embraced the polytonality of of uh the players of the avant-garde jazz movement very much became a kind of godfather of that movement uh signed 
Albert Eiler and Archie Shep. Uh, uh, apparently, he was a great benefactor, as Rashid Ali makes the point in my movie. If you couldn't make your rent, you could give Train a call and he would help you out. He was uh, very, very, I referred to the section where I uh, uh, expound on what I was just talking about as uh, the second coming of St. John. So, uh, he called he was, it the Coltrane Circle, or it was called that? Say it again. Was it the, his version of free jazz called the Coltrane Circle? Oh, I, I don't know about that. Oh. <laughs> okay. So what was his relationship to Ornette Coleman and the others? Uh, do you think that he was moved to, to change to some degree because he was hearing these younger musicians? Oh, absolutely. I think it was, you know, osmosis. I think, uh, again, they were all, all in the same city and uh, they were very much, you know, feeding off of each other and, you know, Train was always transitioning. Uh, he was always, his playing was always changed. I mean, he was also very influenced by uh, Eastern sounds and Middle Eastern music and, and Indian music. You know, his son is, is named after Ravi Shankar, Ravi Coltrane. So, mm. you know, Train was, was definitely getting a lot of influences from a lot of different uh, uh, musical genres, but avant-garde jazz was was definitely a, a, uh, a motivating force. Did his standing in the jazz community lend more status to the free jazz movement? Oh, absolutely. You know, when, when the number one artist in jazz is, is sanctioning what you're doing, I, I, I think that, that definitely generates a certain element of respect. Although some people started complaining, hey, I didn't go to see this John Coltrane. I went to see the other John Coltrane. Right, right. I mean, he was dubbed anti-jazz, you know, and as a 13-year-old, when I first bought these records, I didn't understand, you know, to me, this was jazz. I didn't understand the, uh, the disparity there, but uh, I still don't really. Well, let's listen to one of his most famous recordings. Here's John Coltrane performing My Favorite Things.
I wish we could play it all, but we only right. have so much time here. Right. Uh, that was uh, John Coltrane and McCoy Tyner, a lot of McCoy Tyner on My Favorite Things. I'm talking to Tom Sergal about his film, Fire Music, The Story of Free Jazz, which opens this Friday at the Film Forum at 209 West Houston Street. Uh, now, that was uh, on the cusp, wasn't it? It wasn't exactly free jazz. Right, but that is a theme that he would return to, my favorite things. Uh, again, very much coming out of a jazz tradition, the way the beboppers used to uh, take uh, show tunes and uh, uh, pop songs of, of their era and uh, radically reinterpret them. Isn't free jazz a misnomer in many cases? Wouldn't it be more accurate to say that while these musicians freed themselves from a traditional bebop approach, the music is far from being truly free because it draws up uh, on early styles of jazz. It's been described as an attempt to return in some, ta- in some ways to jazz's early, often religious roots. Right. That's true. Um, well, of course, the joke is they call it free jazz because you don't get paid. You know, but. <laughs> and. Didn't free jazz musicians also draw heavily on world music and ethnic music traditions from around the world? You mentioned train train in India, but they also played African, Asian instruments, unusual instruments, in some cases invented their own. Right, right, right. Coltrane was aligned with Olatunji from Africa and, as I said, very much much influenced by Shankar and his his contemporaries. And um, uh, getting back to where we were just referencing, you know, free jazz... Uh, is a rather reductionist term. Um, I, I, I use it uh, only in that we sort of know what we're talking about when we use that term phrase, but it, 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 it is a kind of umbrella term. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of music that came out of this movement that's highly composed. Uh, improvisation is always an underlying force but you know you look at the music of uh uh the acm uh of chicago or the black artist group in st louis and uh uh, it's very much uh influenced by new music and contemporary classical uh so it's it's a variegated art form uh a a lot of things were happening uh and and a lot of it had to do with uh uh, where it was happening The, the the sound in the midwest uh, it, it, it was sparser at times, and uh, the use of mi- uh, miscellaneous little percussion was was definitely an, uh, a, a signature sound of, of that scene. And uh, the 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 scene in Europe, which uh, uh, evolved a little later, was also uh, very much different. Uh, a, a lot less influenced by blues and. Um, uh, very much had it, it, its own sound as well. So, and they, uh, and they, they called it free improvisation. Right. Uh, right. Didn't many Americans move there when it became too expensive to live in New York City? I don't know if it's... Hmm. Well, I don't know how expensive it was to live in New York City at that time. It still I, is, I, I can tell you. Yeah, well, no, I'm, I'm here too, so I understand that. But... Uh, um, I think that was more a uh, byproduct of racism, really. And I think also Europe is always more appreciative of culture, certainly uh, uh, indigenous culture, jazz. Uh, you know, uh, some label it as, as one of America's only uh, uh, indigenous art forms. It's, it still is and always was more appreciated overseas. 
Well, perhaps because Europeans were more open to experimental classical music or whatever we want to call that, avant-garde music. And uh, why do you think Americans are less appreciative of this music? Uh, that is... <laughs> you don't want to answer. Okay. I, I don't we've know. Created. The answer is I do not know. And yeah. I do not fathom that. But. Now, um, another... Well, we should talk about some of the other uh, musicians you feature. Prince right. Lachey. Yes. What was his role I, in the movement? Uh, you know, Prince, again, was... Um, uh, well, Prince actually went to high school with Ornette Coleman. So uh, uh, Prince was part of the California scene in the Bay Area. Uh, he and uh, Sonny Simmons uh, uh, made a very influential album called The Cry. And um, they, uh, again, had, had had their own sound. But uh, I think I... I, I uh, expound on the movie is that he basically heard recording of Eric Dolphy and that was it. He had to move to New York immediately in order to uh, get closer to the source. So uh, 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 the, the Prince was a, a, a great and original force. And, uh, <laughs> and, and Albert Eiler is another musician you feature. Are you hoping that this right. film will bring more people to these musicians who's um, people may be aware of their names, but may not necessarily know their music anymore, especially since we, uh, we're less likely to put a, uh, an LP on, <laughs> on the turntable and listen right. to a whole album. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> that is my goal. That, that's mm -hmm. the, why I made the movie. I want to, uh, highlight these great artists. I mean, you know, the thing is in the, uh, in the course of the making of the movie, you know, 16 of the artists that I interviewed have died. So, um, well, sad. yeah, uh, I, I want to, uh, definitely, uh, highlight their legacy and, and yes, get people to appreciate the, uh, the great artistic strides that they made. You mentioned the AACM, the association for the advancement of creative musicians, right? That was Midwestern. That was from Chicago. Uh -huh. Yeah. 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 But they were also uh, playing free jazz of some sort, right? Yeah, uh, they yeah uh, uh, yeah great artists like uh, Art Ensemble Chicago, Joseph Jarman who appears briefly in my movie, uh, Roscoe Mitchell, George Lewis. Uh, uh, they very much had their own signature sound, and um, uh, they influenced then the St. Louis contingent, which became uh, Oliver Lake and Kita Carroll and. Julius Hempel, and they became the Black Artist Group. Um, uh, yeah, uh, again, they 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 very much had their own their own thing. And, um, should be appreciated as such. Did any European jazz musicians make a name in in this movement? Right, absolutely. I get into that. Uh, I believe the section is entitled uh, "The Old World Does the New Thing." Uh, uh, I, Again, for whatever reason, uh, this music took root in very specific regions uh, in Europe. It really started to uh, uh, happen in uh, Holland, Germany, and England. And again, all those three countries very much had their own distinctive sounds. Uh, I think Tristan Hansiger, the American expatriate, makes the point that the Germans scene maybe paralleled New York the most. It was what would be dubbed, you know, kind of the hard-blowing uh, uh, 
polytonal thing that was coming out of New York. In England, it was uh, uh, more radical. Uh, uh, they, they would get into little miniature sounds and uh, almost inaudible performances. At, at times, they were dubbed, it was dubbed insect music. and Insect pollen. music. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or as Barry Guy makes the point, the Germans used to dub them uh, washing machine music because the music was so cyclical. It would just go round <laughs> and round. And uh, in Holland, I think uh, Han Benek makes the point that uh, maybe because they were a little country, they were much more postmodern, much more eclectic. Uh, uh, they would uh, uh, tap into all sorts of all sorts of forms that maybe their their contemporaries in, in uh, England and Germany wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily buy into. So they would play the blues. <laughs> so that was a that was a distinctive uh, uh, characteristic. Probably uh, the most eccentric member of this movement was Sun Ra. Right. And he claimed to be from Saturn. Right, exactly. Uh, that, he wore the, spacesuit costumes and, and he, well, he used synthesizers. Right, among other things. And uh, again, though, uh, his sound was much more conventional until he moved to New York. Uh, it, uh, as I as I said earlier, it was a it was a sort of symbiosis. The artists were definitely feeding off each other and and probably prodding themselves into more radical musical terrain as a consequence. So, does his music take free jazz into a different direction? Oh, absolutely. For one thing, it was a, a big band. Uh, uh, it was an orchestra, or as he dubbed it, an orchestra. orchestra. Yeah, a a r k. I mean, there's, you know, Sun Ra is a uh, phenomenon unto himself. Uh, uh, yes, as, as you said, David, wear spacesuits. And uh, I, I think I read in, uh, that he would actually take a seamstress on, on, on tour with them in order to maintain their space age garb. And uh, yes, he claimed to be from Saturn and he, he had a, a very specific uh, tenets uh, to which his uh, musicians would have to comply no no alcohol no no women uh no drugs uh i think rashid ali made the point in the course of my movie that he he really appreciated their musical contributions but uh, he was a little uh taken aback at the sort of uh cult-like uh structure to to the unit so uh uh he but he was he was really something uh, something from out of this world <laughs> And he, he imposed restrictions on his musicians that went beyond the kind of music they could play. Right. They weren't really allowed to play with other people too much. Uh, so it was, it was a very insular, but um, I, I don't want to degrade his, his, his musical ability. He was an amazing artist. Well, so. we're going to listen to a little something from him now. Uh, this is pretty long, so we're not going to hear it all. But okay. here's a section of Space is the Place by Sun Ra and his orchestra.
That was a section of Sunrise Space is the Place. Uh, it's, it's a far cry from what we've heard from Ornette Coleman and John Coltrane. Right, right. Well, it's, you know, it's a, it, as I said, it's a free jazz. It's a, a varied art form. It, a big it, umbrella. Exactly, right. Uh, my guest is Tom Sergal, whose film, Fire Music, The Story of Free Jazz, opens this Friday at the Film Forum at 209 West Houston Street. Uh, will it be opening around the country later on? Uh, yes. Uh, let's see. Uh, we're opening in Los Angeles in, on the 17th, and I think it's uh, playing in uh, Austin and Albuquerque and uh, uh, Canada. I'm not sure exactly where. I think Toronto. Uh, this and, is. And, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. No, no, and, and, and hopefully it'll uh, open up to a wider audience after that as well. Well, to a lot of people who d- don't even know that it exists. I mean, what is the situation right now? Yeah. First of all, I should say that this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Can I go to a, a jazz club these days and uh, see people playing free jazz? 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, in the pandemic era, it's a little uh, hard yeah. to come by. But, uh, you know, uh, my friends at Art for Arts uh, puts on the Vision Festival every year, which is, uh, you know, nothing but avant-garde jazz. And it's, uh, I actually performed at the first Vision Festival some 20 years ago. And uh, it's uh, very much in full stride. And there's, there's gigs every night, uh, uh, somewhere in the New York area, at least, uh, where this music is being performed. So what do I do? Google free jazz near me? <laughs> arts for Arts is probably the, uh, the, the greatest exponent of this, of this art form in the uh, New York area. Um, so uh, uh, keep abreast of what they're doing. And uh, I think they have uh, uh, pretty much we weekly communiques informing you as to where to hear this music. You mentioned that a number of the musicians died while you were making the film. Many of them died young. Coltrane died in 1967 at the age of 40 right. of liver cancer. Right. Um, how did his death affect the free jazz movement? Well, Rashid Ali makes the point that it really killed it at, at that juncture. Uh, uh, you know, when when the number one artist is... is, is uh, espousing the merits of, of the music you're playing, and then he is no longer with us. Uh, yeah. You know, it, it was a kind of death knell. But, uh, you also conclude the story of another of the, the big stars of the time, Eric Dolphy, who died in Berlin when he was just 34. What, yeah. What happened to him? He was an undiagnosed diabetic, and he just huh. went into a state of insulin shock, and he was beyond treatment, uh, uh, you know, I yes, Carl Berger and Ingrid Sirsto took him to the hospital, and he just never recovered. And uh, one of the great tragedies of the movement. The film includes a, a mix of recent and archival interviews and performance footage. How long did it take you to put it all together? Because <laughs> oh, lo longer than I care to confess. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, God, probably. Uh, Probably about 12 years. Uh, wow. You know, again, I was, uh, you know, rather economically restricted. So I could have made the movie in six months if I could jet around the world and uh, interview all these people. But uh, fortunately, I was in New York. So everyone passes through at some some point or another. So I was able to get to everyone that I could. And, uh, and did all the musicians, were they all happy about being interviewed? Because oh, the musicians who I interviewed were yeah, happy yeah. about being interviewed. The ones who refused to be interviewed certainly were not. And uh, did some refuse to be interviewed? Why? Yeah. yeah. Did they want to disassociate themselves from it, or they just don't I, I think that this is something you should talk about? I can't begin to tell you about other people's motivations. You know, uh, for whatever reason, maybe they just don't feel like talking about themselves. Maybe they thought the music should just speak for itself. So uh, they have a point to some degree. We don't have much time left. Uh, any other musicians that we should mention? Uh, you know, uh, 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 sure. <laughs> I mean, uh, Carl Berger, uh, uh, Han Bennett, Peter Bratzman, uh, Evan Parker. I'm trying to think of people who are still alive. Uh, Pharaoh mm. uh, Sanders, uh, 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 Eric Dolphy, we discussed. Uh, uh, 
John Carter, Bobby Bradford, hmm. <laughs> the list goes on and on. Uh, Art Ensemble of Chicago, Black Artist Group. Uh, there is infinite beauty to be had, and uh, everyone should have it. And you also include abstract visual sequences to accompany the music. Was your goal to capture the essence of free jazz in a visual form? Yeah, that's true. I, uh, I very much wanted to... Uh, do something in the spirit of the music itself and sort of uh, augment the music with, with visuals that sort of, you know, parallel the, the, the actual music being played. Uh, I, I, you're not working on another film about jazz, are you? Uh, I, I'm, I'm still... I'm still, I'm working on just promoting this one. You're recovering. <laughs> <laughs> Not recovering. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm in a state of celebration and that the music, the uh, movie is actually going to be out there and people will get to see it. And uh, I'm just trying to do my utmost to uh, service the music. That's the whole point of the music. The movie is, uh, uh, it's my civic duty to bring this music to a larger audience if yeah. possible. Well, I, I would propose putting it on a double bill with Ken Burns' jazz series. <laughs> right, which is, you know, a very fine film, uh, just with one glaring omission. Yes. Uh, and uh, this is my cinematic corrective to his, his, his error in judgment. And the film is called Fire Music, the story of free jazz, which opens this Friday at Film Forum at 209 West Housen Street. And my great thanks to Tom Sergal for being our guest today. It's been a real pleasure talking with you and thinking about this important music that doesn't get very much attention anymore. Okay, well, thank you very much, Leonard. It was uh, great to speak to someone who is uh, qualified to discuss what it is that we were talking about. You are obviously a devotee yourself. Well, my first uh, radio show ever was a jazz show. Right. Uh, I was the only jazz DJ on WKCR when it was not a jazz station. Wow, that's something. Yeah, well, it was <laughs> a while is, ago. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks again. All right, thank you. And that brings us to the end of our show. Special thanks to segment producer Barbara Kahn for preparing today's interview. If you'd like to hear more of our one-hour interviews, you can access them streaming on demand at WBAI.org or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere else that podcasts are available. There are also links to our past shows at LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I go, I need to ask you to support WBAI as we're struggling to stay afloat during this difficult time. We're, we're asking all of our listeners who haven't taken that step already to make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. Please do it right now to keep the unique in-depth content we bring you on the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. WBAI is the only station on the New York radio dial that's supported 100% by its listeners. But that means we rely on people like you to stay on the air. It's the way this whole crazy experiment in completely listener-sponsored radio works. And if you like the sound of no corporate overlords telling us how to do this show and the kind of wide range that we are uh, allowed to do on one show, everything from history and politics and food to 
something like today, free jazz, um, why not come on board and help us keep it going? We might have all the state-of-the-art cutting-edge technology here at WBAI, but we are refreshingly independent. So please call 212-209-2950 right now or go online to give to WBAI.org to keep Landed Lopez at Large coming to you on WBAI weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. And from all of us at the station to everyone who has contributed so far, Thanks. We're off tomorrow, but we hope that you can join us again on Thursday when author James Reston Jr. will discuss his new book, The 19th Hijacker, a novel of 9-11. We'll see you then.